everyone, and welcome to Let's Read Out. Before we begin, I just want to send a big thank you to Dr. Amon Karana and Ahmad Chiste of the University of Kentucky, who put together such a fabulous case of the week last week. If you have a great case, but no mentor to work with, not a problem, or if you'd like to work with me on a case, please don't hesitate to reach out. As many of you know, I was a body fellow just six months ago, and I landed my dream job at Stanford University as a body attending, where I was previously an undergraduate student, so this was a major milestone for me. I'm incredibly grateful for my next guest. He first came on the show a couple of months ago, and I'd like to call him the Coach K of MSK. You'll know him from his widely popular YouTube videos, Dr. Christopher Bolio. Uh, so I'm Chris Bolio from Stanford Radiology. I'm a uh, professor and uh, mostly do musculoskeletal imaging, but been around Stanford for a long time. Welcome to the show, Chris. Great to have you back. I think we're in February. We have fellows graduating. I think many will find this topic really relevant as they start their new jobs this summer about how to transition to being an attending. Well, um, that's it's a good topic. It's been a little while since I made that transition, but I've definitely seen a lot of trainees um, go from the training phase to becoming an attending. So, you know, maybe maybe the place to start is just, you know, the first uh, couple months of the job. That sounds like a great place to start. I had the luxury of not having to relocate or move. So I made the decision to start on July 1st and rip off the Band-Aid, which I think was a good decision for me since I know that the anticipation would have been more nerve-wracking and everyone else was really nervous on July 1st too. So it was comforting and I was surrounded by other people who were just as nervous. Right. No, and I think, um, you know, the, the key difference is you, you become the final signer on the reports. And so instead of, uh, you know, having somebody uh, looking over your shoulder and always somebody to turn to, you kind of feel like you're, you know, you're, you're the bottom line. And that's, that can be very stressful because there's a lot, lot to know. And, um, you know, fear as well, probably because, you know, you potentially opening up yourself for liability that you haven't had to really worry about as a trainee. Absolutely. That was certainly a new feeling. And now the ownership is on you and making a mistake or misinterpreting a finding. Uh, the report has your name on it as you're now the new attending. Yeah. You know, we all, uh, do have misses and uh, misinterpretations and I, I often think about when I do call these days I often will read like 300 exams in a day like plane films we're talking about and you know my miss rate is not by no means zero so uh, maybe it's five percent so then there's like maybe some 15 cases that day that there's something wrong with um, and hopefully it's not anything major but it's a little bit unsettling um, I think you know, it's important, first of all, to realize that after training and especially after a fellowship that you really know a ton, right? And you definitely know more than the trainees. Um, and in terms of actually making mistakes and things, it's it's just good to realize that that's kind of part of the, the practice. And um, 
you don't always know when you've when you've actually made a mistake, um, and so that's that's also part of the equation. Um, I think it is it's obviously very important to to learn about what mistakes you you have made though, because that that's the only way you're going to know uh, in the future how to do better. I really like that point, Chris, because I think you do know more than you think you do. And the times that I've gotten myself into trouble are when I've tried to talk myself out of something. And I tell my residents and my fellows, if you see something, say something, even if it's just putting it in the finding to communicate that, yes, I did see that. Um, Just so when someone else comes back to read your report, they see that you saw it too. Yeah, it's about like trusting your intuition um, that you've, you've seen a lot of different types of exams and if something is just not settling right with you, kind of pay attention to that, that feeling that you're getting and give it some more time or uh, ask somebody else to take a look at things to corroborate your thoughts. I know that's a little bit of a vague um, statement overall, um, but it is also true you want to be feel like you're, you know, you're never really alone, hopefully, even if you're in a, in a solo practice, for example, you should have colleagues that you could probably turn to and get another opinion. And, and definitely in an academic setting, you can do that pretty easily. Um, you know, most of the things that we deal with are not, you know, immediate life and death emergencies. Uh, there are there are certainly those cases, but, but a lot of the things we, we dither about, you can kind of take a little bit of time and reflect on it yourself or ask other people for input before you finalize the report. I completely agree, Chris. I don't think that asking for help or one's need to ask for help is a weakness. In fact, the person might be flattered. If someone asked me to look at a case, I know that I'm always uh, really touched that they thought of me and humbled that they think highly of my opinion. I also like to be really specific when I ask somebody to to help me with a case. A lot of our body sequences, as you know, have a number of different uh, phases and images. And so I I do like to say, hey, can you can you look at series five, image 40? Do you think that's more solid than cystic? And being really uh, detailed about the specific question is, as you know, the case better than anyone. And they're they're walking in into the case fairly cold. What are some other ways um, that you can not be a pester or not be annoying to someone else when potentially curbsiding them for help? To me, as a recipient of you know people asking for help, sometimes it's what I appreciate is is, is people having uh, a sensitivity to how busy I might be too. So to give it a little bit of time, and and that's where. That's where something kind of, I guess, asynchronous like chat can come in. And if you have a chat function on your, on your packs, or you could text somebody or something, you know, say, hey, you know, I would really appreciate your input on this case, uh, and if, especially if it's not an urgent thing. So, so that's one thing. Um, I do. I think we all appreciate, like you said, being thought of as somebody that that would be. Uh, a soothsayer of, of sage wisdom, right, and, and input on things. So so I, I can't think of many people when they're asked to have input on a case that they would be, you know, reluctant or annoyed, unless they're just so busy that it's just yet one more thing to do with that. And that's why I think it's important to be sensitive to the, to the timing of things. Any other recommendations when someone's, uh, you'd like to consult is pretty busy and, and 
you can't find anyone else to ask? Yeah, another thing you can do if you're not sure about something is just give it a little bit of time and you know, some, some insight may come to you, but you don't have to necessarily sign all your reports within just a few seconds. Give it, give it an hour or two and let it simmer a little bit. And often I've found that that helps me reframe my thoughts or I think of something that I didn't think about immediately. I think simmering is a great idea, especially if it's an outpatient, it's 4.30 on a Friday. That doesn't have to be signed before you go. I'll, I'll take the evening to maybe do a literature search and then pot- potentially sign it off Saturday morning or just think about it one more day. Again, there's, there's no rush for immediately signing it off before 5.30. Yeah, I think it's better to get it uh, right, if you will, the, the first time than to go back and do an addendum or something like that if you rethink things. Going back to June 30th, Chris, I remember you told me, you know, in the first week or so, try not to recommend too many additional imaging studies for each and every finding um, that you're putting in your impression. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? That's a tricky one because everybody kind of sets their own threshold for things. And I do think that over time and experience, hopefully people become less of an overcaller. Um, but it's probably a tendency to become an overcaller early on because you're worried about missing things or misinterpreting things. So um, I, I just think you kind of have to rely a lot on your experience that you have so far and, and just think about you know the different observations, like use the example of like a small adrenal nodule or a small pulmonary nodule like how many times do you really see those things come back to bite the patient? And usually the answer is pretty darn uncommon. So, so not every single patient needs you know, an adrenal MRI or a pelvic ultrasound or a thyroid ultrasound or a bone scan or all these other ancillary tests. I mean, it's important to be thorough. I definitely tend to be, I don't know if I'm an undercaller. My motto is call it tight call it right. I definitely think you have to know your audience or know your customer as if you have a patient with a suspicious adrenal finding and also an ipsilateral right renal mass then yeah that that adrenal CT would probably be recommended. Yeah and and the, the flip side is true too in the sense that if somebody has uh, the unfortunate situation of having like a stage four malignancy with like say pulmonary and liver metastases, that if you don't characterize that adrenal mass, you know, nodule, it just probably ain't gonna matter that much for that patient. It's just not gonna change the management. And that's that, that gets to another point about, you know, don't hesitate to talk to the referring clinicians about exams that you're unsure about. They may be unsure themselves and maybe together you can work it out better. Uh, Certainly that's the best way to get to know people and to get them to trust you over time and you know to work together. That's probably one of the best advice I have received before becoming an attending was that if you are unsure about something or just need more history I epic the I epic message the provider or I'll I'll reach out to them asking for more help or say hey I'm not entirely sure what's going on this is what I think is that you know concordant with what you're seeing clinically 
And I think that, again, it like you said, it earns their trust, it builds a rapport, and uh, they, they come to trust you more and, and will come to you. And it also puts a face or puts a voice to your report. Chris, I wanted to segue and start talking about readouts. I remember July 1st I started and I was deathly afraid to read out and I was nervous. I wanted to, you know, preview the case as much as possible, but then I started to gain a little bit more confidence and sometimes I treat it as a game and I'll and I'll sit down and I've had I now have the courage to sit down without knowing anything about the case. I'd love to hear your tips and tricks for new attendings reading out. I think that one of the important things is to to really try to understand what the trainees are actually seeing. I often kind of think about this concept about, do you see what I see? And, and as an attending with experience, you know, you might glance across the room at something and go, oh my God, look at that liposarcoma, um, and make some diagnosis. Whereas early on, it's not always clear that the trainees even have, have the, the visual skills or the, you know, the visual brain connection to uh, make diagnoses. So, so I will make sure that they are holding on to the, the mouse pointer and I want them to point at things and say, what exactly are you seeing? And describe to me exactly what you're seeing there because it, it's a leap of faith to assume that they're seeing the same thing I am. I mean, hopefully I'm seeing something at a little bit of a higher level of um, sophistication, but the first step is just to make sure they're actually seeing the same thing on an image and they can just can describe it. I love that point, Chris, about having them show you with the mouse, you know, what exactly they're looking at. I know early on I made some mistakes and some wrong assumptions that everything the trainee and I had talked about was crystal clear and understood. But then when I'd go back to sign the report, I realized that it wasn't crystal clear. So now I definitely, at the end of the case, like to make sure to summarize what we've talked about and make sure that the impression points are are congruent with what we talked about as well. Yeah, I think that's great if you can. And it's, it's difficult, right, because things are so busy and um, but at the end of the day, the reports are our most important you know, output of our, our work. Perhaps you can give me some guidance on the resident or trainee. You know, we're approaching the end of the year. Senior residents, fellows are getting even more comp- confident and competent. And what about the trainee who maybe disagrees with you a little bit and doesn't believe in, in what your report says. Yeah, so as an attending, we hope that all the trainees are, um, you know, bow to us and, and think that we're God and so on and that everything we say is golden. Um, the reality is that's not quite true, right? Um, so the challenge that can come up is if a trainee is disagreeing with you actively about one of your, your diagnoses, and it can be very uncomfortable, right? The the bottom line is that you are the bottom line, so what you say goes, but it's it's important to obviously listen to the trainee because they may be seeing something you're not seeing. Um, at the end of the day, sometimes it's important just to kind of be firm and say, you know, I think we're going to go this way because I really think that that's the best thing uh, for this situation. And, you know, 
people have different personalities and um, sometimes the personalities are just not a perfect match and that can be a tricky situation um, but I think you just have to kind of rely on your own expertise or you know if it becomes actually really challenging you could go to a third party and try to get some kind of a you know a, a neutral party to like help help kind of manage the situation or help kind of come to a conclusion and the opposite scenario Chris where a trainee is potentially really struggling so that definitely comes up and I think way I look at it is that if, if you're noticing that in a trainee it's highly likely that other people are noticing that as well and so I think it kind of is a little bit of a community problem um, that often comes up about a, a trainee that's that's deficient for, for whatever reason so so it can it doesn't have to land entirely on you you know you want to be able to give objective input to the the community uh, if you will the you know the your colleagues, but then to come up with some kind of a strategy together, and that might that might end up going to the program director, right? And um, we do have trainees from time to time that need some kind of remediation because they're just so far behind their peers. That's some really great advice, Chris. I'd like to next talk about feedback, and can you tell me a little bit about how to approach that with a resident? A couple things. One is that. Um, our trainees actually want feedback. We may think that they, they don't want to hear that things aren't perfect, but they're not going to learn otherwise. So that's that's helpful. Um, it's also fair to say that feedback kind of has a negative connotation. It might be like, you know, I think of it, the proverbial trip to the woodshed to get punished for something. But, but feedback can be positive too. So I'm often, you know, congratulating or Telling, telling trainees, you know, that was, that was really a good pickup or a good call on that case. So they get positive reinforcement as well as guidance about things that maybe weren't so, uh, so perfect. Uh, it's good to just have a culture of feedback if you can and just have it be an ongoing process during the, during the day or during the week. Um, it can be tricky because it's, it can be so busy. So in that context, what one can do that can work well is to have, let's say you have a four week rotation to build in a time, I would say like on the, the Thursday or so of the, at the third week, build in a, a set time where you're gonna sit down with the trainee and say, you know, this is some time to give you some feedback about the rotation and how you're doing. And um, that timing I think can be good. If, if you give them feedback on the way out the door on that last Friday, they're gonna be like, okay, great. I guess I didn't know that. But if you have them some time built in at the end that they can go back and, and study whatever the gaps are, that could be really helpful. I really like that idea, Chris. I think looking ahead in my calendar and you know asking the trainee, are they available for a brief 20 minutes and putting it on your calendar early of when you could potentially give feedback in week three, I'm definitely going to start implementing that I do um, yeah, and ask and ask how things are going you know I guess with me individually or for, for the whole service and um, and that can definitely be informative as well what insight do you have in terms of how to start the conversation how to start the feedback meeting I think and I'm, I'm no expert on feedback but I think the other thing that's always really helpful to do is to sort of start out by asking the trainees, you know, what, what's their insight? Like say, 
how do you think you're doing or how, how's it going? Do you feel like you're learning a lot on this rotation and kind of open it up to them so that you can see whether or not they have insight into any potential deficiencies? Going back to what you mentioned about positive feedback, a book that I've found immensely helpful throughout being a new attending is Put Happiness to Work, Seven Strategies to Elevate Engagement for Optimal Performance by Eric Karpinski. And he talks about sending daily appreciation emails. He even talks about physical thank you cards and for his employees. And I also sometimes just like to, if we're you know on a break and, and doing case conference, I like to bring up trainees work that is pretty strong or a good call or um, just to highlight any positives um, that you can. I'd like to switch gears a little bit from trainees to something that I get overwhelmed about is the alphabet soup of societies and meetings. Where do I even begin? Yeah, it is, it is a challenge and it's expensive and you could, you'd spend a lot of time going to meetings um, that may or may not be of a benefit to you. Uh, the biggies, uh, RSNA and Rankin Ray, um, ISMRM, those are super important societies, but I think it's, it's kind of hard to, in a way, get ahead in those because they're so large. And so at least for me, what was more beneficial for my career was to get involved with the smaller society meetings, like what used to be called Society of Computed Body Tromography and MR, SCBT-MR, and now it's called SABI, S-A-B-I. Um, and that was because uh, there were other people in the department who are already fellows in that society or belong to it, and they could help kind of sponsor me early on, whether it was for a research presentation or early faculty presentations, and kind of get, get into that society and become known among some of the other members, whereas it's a, it's a bit of a morass at the big meetings like RSNA. I mean, you can definitely get, get put up for things in the big meetings, but um, I think the smaller ones are better. And then you just have to be kind of strategic about how many societies can you belong to. Like in, I'm sure in abdominal imaging, you could probably belong to six or eight different societies and then end up spending thousands of dollars. So um, you can kind of go with what other people are doing in your department that have experience and that can be really helpful guidance or possibly avoid meetings that they didn't think were particularly valuable. But um, it's, once again, just too many things to do these days and you have to be quite selective. I like those ideas. That definitely lessens the stress a bit. So it's February, Chris, and I know that I have my first performance eval, my performance review coming up in April. I'm hurrying and stressed about getting my CV up to date. Let's talk about promotion. So in our department, we have these um, annual activity reports that we put together, all faculty put together, that comes covers the, the year like from April 1st to March 31st, and then that, that report is the basis for review by the department, for um, potentially for bonus, but to make sure you're on track with your academics and clinical work and everything for potential promotion. Um, so I think the thing is to um, 
be careful keeping track of what you're doing. You know, it's easy to forget if you give a talk to a certain group or um, you know, projects that you're involved in. And so have a system, whether that's just putting everything into your calendar so you can go back and review it that way, or you know, I would recommend keeping your CV up to date. It's easy to kind of let that slip. Uh, you may have an administrative assistant that could help you do that. Um, a lot of people find that very effective. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's on one end knowing, knowing what the next step is and every institution is different. So UCSF is quite a bit different than, than Stanford in terms of the different steps you take and so on. So I can't really be real specific, but I think to me the main thing is to just have a good system for keeping track of what you're, what you're doing. Um, and, uh, and that'll definitely help you be more thorough in your report. I certainly need to get better at being a little bit more proactive about keeping my CV up to date. Can you give me some guidance on what's looked upon as favorable? Does my podcast count? Does your YouTube channel count? What should I be putting down or what is important to not overlook? Uh, it's a good question. And like the social media things like a podcast or a YouTube channel or things like that, it's, um, I, think, I think it's becoming more mainstream as being recognized, but uh, I'm not sure that there's official recognition in these things as much as there is for the traditional academic work like writing a, you know, a first authored or senior authored peer-reviewed scientific manuscript, right? So those, there's kind of a hierarchy of things where um, still um, peer-reviewed publications carry a lot of weight um, and, and things like clinical reviews um, carry less weight but are important. Case reports are often considered to be, you know, some value but probably compared to like a peer-reviewed paper, you know, 10% worth or something like that, and some institutions don't even pay much attention to case reports at all. Um, so I think from, from what, the way I'm thinking about things, like for a YouTube video, for example, if you're giving a lecture and it has a number of views, like we have a nice, nice one on the lumbar spine now from one of our, our neuroradiology faculty, it's got like 4,000 views, and, um, and to me that's worth at least as much as giving that at a CME course or more because it's being seen continuously. So there's no black and white answers, but, um, but hopefully there is some credit for these social media type things as well. I know that committees also like to hear about your goals and ambitions. Can you give me some examples? My strategy is always to pick goals that I've almost already completed so I can be certain of success. And so specifically, the more concrete you can be and um, not overreaching is important, like the term low-hanging fruit. Like we know often things don't go uh, as efficiently as you think they might, so you might put together uh, a set of objectives and goals for the year and then consciously scale them back a bit to try to be realistic about what you're going to be able to accomplish. I think the other thing I would say, and it's, it's important, is that as a junior faculty person, uh, all of us have been through that before, and so there's a ramp-up period of a couple of years, maybe it's even a five-year period, where 
you're getting familiar with your clinical work and teaching and all those things, and there's a lot of latitude given to people as they kind of get into the system and get to know other collaborators and get involved with projects. So, so don't overthink the first couple of years. It's going to take a couple of years to get, get settled. Chris, we've talked a lot about different areas from evaluations to promotions. If you had to give your top five advice and people only listen to the last half of this episode, what would you tell them? Um, so I think, you know, um, be, be confident in your, your knowledge. You've gone through a tremendous amount of training and, um, and you, you have a great knowledge base. And so be confident about that. Um, realize that nobody is perfect and that you will inevitably make mistakes. Hopefully they're going to be minor. Um, and if you do make mistakes, you know, you need to own up to them and, and recognize that it, things were not perfect and try to remediate that somehow, whether that's just simply amending a report or talking to a referring doc or a patient. Um, be patient with yourself. Uh, as I said, it takes a few years to kind of get in the groove and, you know, you know a lot, but you'll learn a ton more as an attending and you'll probably look back in 10 years at reports you wrote and go, go like, oh my God, I said that? What was I thinking? And you were thinking probably just fine, but it's like you've learned enough over time that, that uh, you would do it differently now. Um, use your colleagues, right? Don't ever feel like you're on your own. You know, you can always bounce ideas off people, even if they're not at your same institution. Um, people send me, you know, images on my phone or little videos. I'm not sure that's the highest fidelity, but that uh, can kind of work pretty well. And, you know, keep track of what you do, I guess. I've mentioned that before. It's like do little talks, conferences, uh, projects you're involved in. Um, and so when you need to make a report about things, you'll have a good record of it. It's not like you know, sweating like, what did I do this year? Um, and I think we didn't touch on this, uh, you know, directly, but be selective about what you take on, right? There could be some projects that you just, if you're just not passionate about it and you don't have to do it, think about saying no and just really focus on things you're really passionate about because you, you're going to be energized to work on the things you want to do. We're almost out of time, Chris, but looking ahead to my second and, you know, five years from now, what should be some short-term and long-term goals as I head into another year of being a junior attending? So it's probably good to reflect back on your first year. And, you know, for me, I would kind of write, write down some, some notes about my thoughts about things and um, try to be uh, concrete about moving forward and have some goals, like you said. And, and maybe that's to start getting involved in a particular society. Um, or maybe it's working with your more senior colleagues to say, you know, what societies should you be looking at more or or go to them and say you know I'm really interested in this society can you look out for ways to help help me advance in that you know sort of a sponsorship situation um, another thing that I think that can be useful is you want to obviously continue learning right and so sometimes you're asked to put together a talk on something that's like 
a topic that you just really, you know, may not have studied a whole lot. You think, well, I'm not going to put it together and talk about it. I don't know anything about it. Well, you know what? That may actually be the best topic for you to put talk together on because you're going to learn a, more, a lot more about it at that point. So I, w I wouldn't stay away from things that you feel like you're not expert at because you can become expert at them as you go along. Aha. Uh -huh. Spoiler alert for our listeners paying attention. That might just be our next podcast about how to give a great talk or a lecture. I've been known to give that talk myself. Well, I look forward to recording that with you, Chris. Chris, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I am super grateful to have you as a mentor, and I know our listeners love listening to you as well. Well, thank you, Lindsay. It's always nice to join you, and um, I'd be happy to participate more in the future. I hope, hope this uh, is useful for some folks, and uh, you know, time goes by fast, so before you know it, you'll be old and grizzled like me, and you'll be giving other people advice. A big thank you again to our wonderful returning guest, Dr. Christopher Bolio. If you like this topic or have some ideas for a future episode topic, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you.